Allow me to begin by saying that this is probably one of those, what I like to call the intimidating requests, where I'm asked to talk about something and I'm like, ah, oh, jeez, you want me to talk about that? Really? Are you sure? I mean, a lot better and a lot smarter people have talked about this than me. I don't think I really have the pedigree to really discuss The Godfather, one of the things that is considered one of the crucial cornerstones in cinematic history, pretty much launched uh, Coppola's career and Al Pacino's. <clears throat> and, let's be honest, is usually considered near the top when you when you when you ask a cinemaphile or you know an art snob or whomever what are the best movies of all time you know, this this is usually pretty far up there but okay i'll do my best i mean i'm just some random dude on the internet i don't know anything but i do want to say a couple of things well there's a decent amount of behind the scenes information on this a lot of it is stuff i have decided to deliberately not cover I think is the best way to put that. Yeah, I could talk about the differences in how, you know, just movie production in general worked back at the time. I could talk about how the actual real-life mafias, plural, were involved in the production of this movie and how there were issues regarding Hollywood and its connection to the mafia at the time, which then led to some issues in the future. I could talk about, you know, all, all the behind-the-scenes stuff where how Marlon Brando was kind of actually on the downswing of his particular career, and I could talk about how nobody wanted Pacino on the screen. I, I could talk about all sorts of stuff like that. But honestly, I sat back and I looked at all that, and I was like, okay, while all of that's interesting in its own right, the more I read about it, the more I didn't see anything that actually informed the film. Usually, the whole reason I do that behind-the-scenes thing back there is because I like to understand how we got to where we are. And I could summarize, you know, based on everything I've looked at, how we got to this point. They got lucky. This is pretty much Star Wars effect in full effect here. Before Star Wars, even. Uh, five years, I think? Before Star Wars came out? This is a movie that should have bombed. And remember, this is Coppola's second piece right after Patton. And so he's like, okay, I, I want to do this. And people are like, no, nah, he's going to be terrible for this. And, and people kept trying to get him fired. And nobody believed in his casting choices. And nobody believed in his directing choices. There were arguments about the script and about exactly what they were going to do with it. And Puzo's original novel. Just, just all sorts of stuff like that. Some people, you know, Brando himself was kind of an aggravation on the set. Because, as I said, Marlon Brando was kind of entering that period of his life where he was starting to be a dick. To, you know, off-camera. Wasn't quite there yet. We're not at Apocalypse Now yet, but, you know, he was getting there. And there were so many problems with it, and they went over budget, but okay, we'll let it go because the film's going, but now we're going over budget again. Uh, maybe we shouldn't do this, and they had to struggle for creative control, and there kept being arguments about it, and they literally had death threats sent to them, and actually had, as I mentioned, the real-life mafias get involved, no names, get involved because, you know, they were like, ah, oh, this is stereotypical and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> this film was just this nonstop disaster, but it became The Godfather. Now, obviously, there is some why behind that. 
Coppola himself is a phenomenal film director and creator. And I think I can add that additional word to him. Usually when I speak of a director, I am speaking of their directorial skills. Sometimes I have to affix editing skills in there as well, because some good directors will keep keep directing in the editing room. Um, you know, you know, usually the really truly great directors will go into the editing room and continue doing their job there is what I mean by that. But then there's directors who are truly good movie creators, who throw themselves into something and really invest themselves and effectively become a combination editor, scriptwriter, director, producer, or any combination thereof. You know, movie creators, in other words. And Coppola is one of those people. The man had a tremendous talent and a huge passion for the work. And I think that's really what helped sell The Godfather, in my opinion. The man looked at the movie and said, I want to make a fantastic work of art. And everyone around him is like, well, we got to make a, a, a movie that sells well. And Coppola is like, well, yeah, obviously we have to make a movie that sells well, but it needs to be a fantastic work of art. Well, no, no, but what about the budget? And, like, I, I, I get this impression, based on his own interviews and based on all the other behind-the-scenes material I have access to, that there was just this nonstop struggle on behind the scenes for, for the creative side of things. But I also want to praise him and his directorial style specifically, because with only really one exception, the movie follows an excellent tempo. Not something I usually say of older films. Obviously, cinematography has changed greatly in the last 40 years, and the very style and, and the approaches to uh, you know, filmmaking have led to different mentalities, different styles of editing, different uh, camera shots, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that I hear most oft criticized when it comes to older films is their pacing. And to be completely blunt, I agree. A lot of over older films, which have good character stuff and good acting, have some directing problems and some pacing problems. This movie is not one of those. The movie manages to maintain a strangely even tempo throughout the course of the work and it's the it's a long film too holy crap it's just and but at no point did i feel bored at no point did i feel like it dragged usually when you have this kind of up and down tempo and funnily enough i actually talked about this very kind of tempo uh very recently when it came to the pirates of the caribbean film which i believe is going live last week or next week i forget which but either way i've already done that from my perspective um because I figured that'd be a quicker project than this one, and I was right. Whew, I've been working on this one for a bit now. Anyways. So, when usually when you see that kind of tempo, it's like... And you can't let it falter or stall, because it just interrupts the whole flow. It would be like if you're on this awesome roller coaster. Right? Now, hear me out. Hear me out. A roller coaster isn't just, yeah, the whole time, right? It's, yeah, yeah, right? In my opinion, properly paced movies will approach the same general concept. Either high action, or high tension, or in other words, some kind of high moment. And then, okay, let's pull out of that plunge. A badly paced movie, which a lot of older movies have this problem, will be like, and then just imagine the roller coaster just stops for like five seconds. Now, it's not really a big deal, right? It doesn't really affect the rest of the ride, right? Well, wrong. Of course it affects the rest of the ride, because you're pulled completely out of the moment. That's why pacing is so important to any fictional work, but especially a movie, which, you know, historically speaking, is going to be a shorter work than a television show, or a, or a game, or a book, or a, or a theater, theatrical work, right? 
you need to have that pace properly designed. And I was astonished at how they managed to use, you know, the wedding was used early on, and then they've got the strong character scenes, and they use, you know, they use the high tension scenes to establish stuff, and then it goes back to character moments, and then it builds back into, you know, just, it, it does this the whole film. I can't summarize it because it's a freaking huge film. But if you haven't seen this film, or if you have, you know, watch it or watch it again and you see what I mean by this pacing thing throughout the whole work. There really is only one scene that I felt didn't work and, funnily enough, it was shoved in by the executives. So as part of the story, uh, Carlo has to viciously beat Connie with his belt in order to provoke Sonny into leaving the safety of the mansion, which leads to the hit uh, on, on Sonny, right? Spoiler alert. Now, that scene is probably that... The only the only scene in the whole movie that really just doesn't gel. It doesn't feel high tempo. It feels thrown in. It feels like it shouldn't be there at all. If you, if you literally chop it out and go straight from the previous scene all the way up to Sonny getting the phone call and being like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to deal with this. You know, it, it's smooth. It, it flows seamlessly from scene to scene. Funnily enough, the Paramount executives at the time said, okay, this can't happen, all right? Like, we need more action. Show us more action. So they literally threw that scene in to satisfy the Paramount executives, and they said, okay, keep filming. Go figure. Anyways. I, uh... I also want to say one other thing really quick. I, I know I am inviting people to make fun of me, but at this point, I, I really don't give a damn anymore. Um, because I'm always, you know, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I have heard some people tout this right alongside um, you know, uh, Casablanca, for example, as one of the greatest films of all time and greatest films ever made and blah, blah, blah. A true work of art, etc., etc. Now, make no mistake, I like this film. It did an excellent job of getting me invested in the characters. In fact, anybody who knows my show knows that I have a really hard time remembering character names, especially if I'm basically doing essay approach. In other words, read or play a work, take notes, talk about it, and then forget about it immediately after because i got to go on to the next project, right? You know, that, that is how a lot of these ruminations work for me. Very few of these stick with me. Early on in my notes here, I'm referring to people by their position. By about the time you get to halfway through the second, uh, into the second page here, I start referring to them by their names. Because their names just started clicking with me. I started recognizing the characters. I started caring about the characters. It actually affected me when they started getting killed left and right. It's just, oh, you know? And that says something. Now, I also want to address one other thing. See, most movies for good or for bad, usually focus around a plot. This one does not. Hear me out. I've, I've spoken so many times about the six points of story, right? Plot is usually the one thing that almost every fictional work has. You, you always got to have some kind of plot, right? And you could argue from a technical or from a literal definition that this movie has a plot. But the movie doesn't fixate or focus around a plot, right? You know, the plot of most movies, and I'm, I'm not even just speaking in recent terms, in the last 30 or 40 years, most movies have a plot that is, here's the main plot, and the movie then revolves around that. You know, there, there's a Death Star we need to go take out. 
um, there's this issue with this freaking dog and, and his you know his life and then and, and there's these there's this guy who's trying to take over the kingdom you know there's so many different things and every every example I just pulled was from the 70s or 80s <laughs> just to make my point even clearer obviously movies nowadays do that too right but Godfather was just here are several years in the life of the family. Now, obviously, Michael is the main character. I'm not going to try and argue against that. Although I've heard some people argue that Michael is not the main character of this film. And I admit that it's at least debatable, at least for the first you know, couple of acts of the film. But uh, this film is all about the concept rather than the plot. Or, if you will, if to use my own terms, I would say the big focus is on themes... Now, of course, there's also a strong character arc emphasis, that's on Michael in particular, and a great uh, deal of strength on characterization. I know I haven't really started talking about the film proper yet, but I just want to say that I was amazed at how many times characters, notably Sonny came up several times in this one, but multiple characters would be presented in a way where you'd think it was going to be a cliche, or it's going to be like the obvious thing, or they're going to devolve into a caricature, and then within... Like, a minute, they would have an additional scene or more lines or more presentation or better acting that shies right back away from that, adds more layers or adds more depths or pulls them away from the caricature. It was, it was astonishing how many times it kept happening. And it was happening for almost every character. I also want to address one other thing really quick. I can absolutely see why so many people had a complaint about Pacino's acting in the first album. I'd say the first two acts of the film. Because he's someone who plays everything very close to the chest. Now, what I find hysterical about this is everyone, including Coppola, by all accounts, were like, what are you doing? And then it's not until the third act that he starts getting off the hilt a little bit, and we start to see what kind of a person he is and how he deals with these situations. But I mention this because it's astonishing to me that Pacino... Uh, Pacino Al Pacino so clearly understood the character arc that Michael was going to be going through, and so accurately portrayed that quiet man at the beginning. He doesn't come across as someone who's about to murder two men in that scene in the Sicilian restaurant. He just comes across as a guy who's quiet, who's almost introverted, really. Then he pulls a gun and he shoots him. Twice. It's a great scene, really. And uh, I did have to look up the translation. I don't speak Italian, sorry. Uh, but I, I, it's, it's a fantastic scene, really. Because the whole point, at least from my analysis, my own perspective, and again, I don't exactly have the pedigree here, is that Michael is someone who is very quiet and very reserved externally. He keeps it all under the hood. Everything he's thinking, all his emotions, all his feeling, his anger or his outburst or his willingness to do horrible things is all kept back behind that mask. And that poker face is on and in full strength. And what I find funny about that is nobody complained about Brando's performance as Vito, but he does the same damn thing. With very few exceptions, he keeps himself all completely contained within. Very nice, very quiet, very reserved. Very polite. The only difference is, of course, everyone fears Vito. Nobody knows what to make of Michael. And remember, Michael served in the war, so it's not like this man is unaccustomed to danger or anything like that. There's an old saying, beware the quiet ones. 
Let's talk about the movie proper. Sorry about this. Uh, I, actually, I'm sorry. I want to say one other thing really quick. How many of you can guess my favorite character in this film? Real question. I'm going to wait just a moment. Because some of you are like, ah, you know, and I'd love to hear your comments guessing about it. Uh, it's Hagen. Tom Hagen. Easily my favorite character. Uh, granted, I'm a big fan of Robert Duvall. It was a treat seeing him on camera again. But I loved the way this guy portrayed himself. He was... Normally, when I see a character like Tom Hagen, he is a typical Type 3 villain. In other words, someone who is a smug snake, who oozes around and uses the law to get his own way, and blah, 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 blah. But he never portrayed himself that way. In fact, quite the contrary. He was the epitome of politeness and decency and respect. Big thing for him, respect. Very reserved. More than willing to do what is necessary. But no more beyond that. And while he cared about the personal side, he also was always focused on the business side. He did a great job. And, of course, Duvall nailed the part. So just huge props there. Anyways, anyways. So, we start off with a very long scene. Now, I don't actually know Italian culture that well. I will admit my own weakness on that part. Forgive me. I am told by behind-the-scenes things that they actually did a lot of work and effort in trying to make sure that this was the most accurate presentation they possibly could do of actual Italian culture rather than Italian stereotype. I don't know. However, what I do know is that the wedding scene was kind of awesome. It's one of those scenes that was just enjoyable to watch, you know. And again, helps with that whole, te whole tempo and pacing thing. The early bits of the movie, if you cut out the wedding, like picture it for a bit. The first, it's like 20 minutes. This movie's so long. The first 20 minutes, mentally cut out the, the wedding and just focus on the little quiet scenes in between. It would work for a bit, but in my opinion, it would start to drag because... The tempo would be all, you know? There's no peak. There's no energy. It's just quiet scene, quiet scene, quiet scene, quiet scene, quiet scene, quiet scene, right? Now, I love the dance of mob politics as it's presented in this movie. It's a, it's a common trend. I'm not going to bring it up every time it comes up or I'd be here for an hour and I, in, or 20 hours or 50 hours or whatever. But I do love it because... Because it's more than just, we are criminals, and we commit crimes for money. You know, I, and I love that presentation. There's actually a bit of an undercurrent theme throughout the whole work, of the difference between... between criminal politics, I'm just going to call it that way, between criminal politics and between money, crimes for money. I don't know what to distinguish these two as, but just keep these two in mind, especially if you're going to rewatch this film with me, because there's a lot of emphasis on both of these mentalities. And, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Berzini? Yeah, Berzini. I actually remembered his frickin' name. Uh, is a good example of money, crimes for money, whereas the Corleones are a great example of, you know, this is just the politics of how we run this crime family, or these crime families. Uh... So I love the intro scene because it establishes that right off the beginning. We've got the gentleman, the, the, the funeral parlor guy, who shows up and says they tried to, you know, they, they hurt my daughter. They, they got let go, you know, sentence revoked, whatever. We need to, please, please, I ask you for justice, please kill these men. And he offers money for it. Now, what I love about this is it's so obvious why Vito, why the Don, finds this insulting. 
Why wouldn't he? He is being treated as if he is a common thug and that if throwing enough money at his face will get it to happen. That's not what he's about. That's not what his business is about. Look, you want us to do something for you? You need to come under the wing. You need to become a part of us. Now, we're not going to make you do all sorts of horrible things, but you will owe me. That's how this works. I may never call in that favor, but you got you owe me a favor. I got a solid on you now. One chop, okay? You want to do that? And what I like about it is it would be easy for the man who, of course, has no idea how any of this works, who, basically, I like that he's willing to prostate himself here. That he is willing to bow before him, ask for his friendship, kiss the finger, all that crap. And then, because he humbles himself, Vito is like, okay, we'll let it go. We'll let it go. I'll take care of this for you. And you owe me. Go enjoy my daughter's wedding. It's a nice little thing. I love it. I love it. Now, I gotta give praise as well. I, I know everyone's talked about this, but it's, uh, it's kind of my job, so forgive me. I love the scene with Luca Brasi. So he's sitting out front, and he's just practicing. Now, at first, I didn't quite get it, even re-watching the film. I actually haven't seen this film in many years. Last time I saw it was when I was visiting Gettysburg uh, with my dad. I know, weird time to watch The Godfather, but whatever. Anyways, but uh, last time, even re-watching this film, it didn't quite click with me at first that he's out there rehearsing his speech. <laughs> And then, you know, Kay is like, um, Michael, what's he doing? Oh, he's, he's, he's just practicing. He, he does stuff for my dad. He's like, oh, I'm very happy, very happy to do this. And then he gets up there. And, of course, we all know the story. This is a gentleman who was a huge fan of Marlon Brando. Big guy, very intimidating. Big fan of Marlon Brando. Kept stuttering of his words, had his paper ready. And it was so genuine to see that nervousness and that fear that they kept the take. And I'm very glad they did great great decision on uh, Coppola's part because it it comes across as if this big intimidating horrifying guy is legitimately nervous to be in the presence of this soft-spoken elderly man it's a great way to visually storytell even though it is through words it's being story told if that makes any sense so we got uh, more wedding stuff, a lot of wedding stuff. I, I only have two pages of notes on this film, but that's because there's very large sections where I don't have much to say about because because the film takes its time. And I'm, that's not a crack at its length. I don't mind the length. That doesn't bother me. Obviously, I, of all people, can't really have a thing about a film being too long, right? But what I mean by that is... There are several scenes which you could summarize by saying blah, right? Just just summarize it with a single sentence. However, and I think several movie files and cinema files would agree with me on this, you would lose a lot of the nuance and the flavor of that scene. In a similar vein, I'm not just going to summarize scenes. I'm going to talk about what I feel is worth talking about. But there's several scenes which go on for several, several minutes that I just found myself sitting here and soaking in the scene as it kind of shows the full granular presentation of what's going on. There's a lot of showing and a lot of telling in this film. Very little crude or rough exposition. Great dialogue, great script. Um, so overall, very nice presentation. I very much enjoy how they did that throughout the course of the film. So I just wanted to give that a little pivot because I'm already down here to the code of conduct thing. Now, I mentioned the politics thing. So Hagen 
goes out to meet with movie producer guy. I don't even remember his freaking name. And he's like, all right, look, we're going to get this. You're going to get Bob involved. I, I don't actually remember the name of the singer. Forgive me. Although Sinatra apparently threw a fit about him. But anyways, but I don't remember the name of the singer. But he's like, okay, look, I'll look into this for you. I'll look into this damn thing. I'll look into this movie. I'll, I'll get you the damn role. Calm down. Now, what I love about it is we've got like a three-layer system here. First of all, we have the simpering idiot, let's just say it how it is, coming to his godfather begging for assistance. Now, the godfather's going to give it to him, but he's not going to be magnanimous about it. He's like, okay, look, man up, all right? Find your balls, rip them out of your purse, get out there and do something about it, okay? What are you doing? God, wake up, wake up, get this guy a drink. Christ's sake, you know, I like that. So then Hagen goes, this is probably the scene when I first watched this film where I fell in love with Tom Hagen and his character because he goes out there and he is very polite, very dignified, very respectful to the movie producer. The movie producer is crass, you know, just rude, and frankly kind of brusque. Like, like he almost strikes me as the kind of guy who should actually belong in the streets. He just happens to have a lot of money. You know, that kind of mentality. You know what I'm talking about? So he's like, ah, and he just throws him out. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. And I was like, okay. Uh, I'll be in town for a bit. I'll be waiting for your call. Next scene, he's being invited to the producer's luxury villa. He's like, hey, why didn't you tell me you worked for a frickin' mob boss? He doesn't say it that way. But that is effectively what he says. So, <laughs> and then I love it, because the producer is, goes out of his way to, to try and showcase his own wealth, to establish himself. And once again, he misses the point, because everything the movie producer talks about is about money. Like, yeah, money to respect, or money to, to prize, or money to whatever, but it's all about the money. Everything he talks about revolves around money. It's a nice way to get that point in uh, early for later when the drug trade comes in. And so he's talking about this, talking about this, and trying to show off and impress Hagen, and by consequence the Corleone family, by constantly going into this money, 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 money. Look at, look at how many zeros are on my paycheck. And Hagen is completely unimpressed. Now, he's not rude about it, because, you know, gentlemen. He's just, yeah, okay, it's nice, very good. Very pretty horse, you know. It's all good. I'm going to chop its head off later, but that's neither here nor there. Anyways, so then, of course, they sit down at the dinner table. He's like, hey, yeah, um, huh, okay, so you're not going to do this. And, of course, the guy talks about why he's not going to do it, and it's because his pride was pricked by, I forget the singer's name, in, uh, in regard to you know, getting this, this actress out from under him, right? And the guy is, again... Core. It's it's a wonderful thing. It's so obvious. I almost hate to praise something so overt, but it's still very well presented. The the, the crass, crude, slime ball producer talking about how he awesome this hot piece of ass was that he dumped money into. Remember that focus again, and all this money he dumped on her, and then he lost her because of this idiot. So I'm not dealing with that. And Hagen's just sitting there. Politely, quietly, reservedly eating his meal. He says, okay, thank you for the nice meal. Uh, is there any chance I could have you drop me off at the airport? I don't want to wait to give him the news. Thank you. Oh, I love that. And then, of course, 
horse in the bed. Now, what I like about the horse in the bed, and I want to use this to segue into something else as well, is that it's really horrifying. It doesn't really feel horrifying anymore with all the things that have happened in fiction and in real life and all the different ways we've come across to, to emphasize that kind of a scene in fiction since then. But if you actually sit back and think about how absolutely blah it would be to wake up in a bed coated in blood from your prized $600,000 horse, that's in 70s dollars, or actually no, I guess that would be in 50s dollars, whatever, you get my point. Freaking expensive horse, and it's blood everywhere, and God, imagine the smell for a second. Just picture that. Picture what that would be like. It's actually pretty powerful of a scene. And I thought it was awesome. And, of course, it helped to emphasize the final layer. The first layer is, of course, you know, the, uh, the second layer is Hagen versus the producer. The third layer is basically showcasing who's actually got the bigger stick on the playing field. In this case, the Corleones. We are willing to go a lot further than you, and um, your money doesn't mean crap to us. Savvy? And I love that. But I said I wanted to segue into this. It was weird watching this film because, you know, the last 40 years of, of fiction have reused lines from this film, events from this film, cliches from this film, references to this film, over and over and over and over and over and over, to the point where it has become a joke to kind of, kind of give the performance where you disrespect me and my daughter's wedding, you know, that kind of a thing. That is used as a joke in itself now, like no additional layers needed, just that's the joke because of how, how done that is. Or the horse's head in the bed, for example, that's what I segue to. And there's several other things, too. I'm not going to cover them all. But it was nice to go back to the source and see why those things got repeated so often to become cliches, to become jokes, to become references. Because a lot of them really, really work here. Another good example. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Now, that line is such a cliche at this point because it's been overdone so much. But really sit back. Remove all that baggage for a second and think about the line in a, in a, in a vacuum. There's the check. Now, put, put a gun to his head. Your ink or your brains are touching that check. Pick. And that suddenly becomes chilling. That really says so much about what they are willing to do. And again, you know, bigger stick on the playing field. They're willing to go further than other people. In many ways, I think most presentations of the Joker, of all characters, are actually based on this kind of mentality. You know, the people who win are the ones who are willing to go way beyond what other people are. And, and in fact, that's actually what Michael himself does in the climax of the film. So I love that. And I love that usage of it. I love that presentation of it. And it's actually chilling. It was great to really appreciate these cliches again. Anyways. So, God, right about the 45-minute point. I, I, I started taking notes early on to show how far into the film I was. We're already at about the 45-minute point. Holy crap. Drugs start coming into it about this point in time. Uh, I do have a quick aside here. I, want to, I really want to talk about this because the attention to detail, while there are a few nitpicks here or there, is insane. My favorite example of this, anyone who knows my show knows I'm really big on bricks, right? It's kind of become a joke that I talk about bricks when it comes to presentation of a video game in particular. But one of the reasons for that is bricks are actually just part of the background. And really well done background is the kind of thing I really appreciate. 
I really love the when the effort is put into making sure that that stuff in the background is authentic or well done or well presented or pulls you into it, right? Well, a lot of the cars had wooden bumpers. Remember, this is pretty much right after World War II. Chrome was one of the many resources, like rubber is another one, or, uh, or nylon is another one, you know. It was one of the many resources that was on the rationing list. So cars had to replace their bumpers with wooden bumpers, and it took years for that to shift back. And I remember the actual scene. It was when uh, Salazzo, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, Salazzo, you know, the, the Act 1 villain, is escorting Hagen out of the diner, and I see one of the cars pulling up, and I'm like, oh, that looks like a wooden bumper. Now, you're going to make fun of me for this. Uh, I was actually watching this on Amazon. That's how I got a hold of a copy, because my actual copy, I'm not sure where it is. And uh, I think my dad has it now that I think about it. But anyway, so I'm, then I'm like, oh my gosh. So I paused the film to go look that up. And it so happens Amazon includes little trivia snippets on the side, which this is actually how I found out about that, because I pause the film and I mouse over, and it's like, as I'm mousing over to the other window, it's like, did you know that they used wooden bumpers for this? And I'm like, holy crap! <laughs> so then I started doing that periodically throughout the film just to see what other snippets I could get. It's a neat little feature. I recommend it for anybody who's watching films on Amazon. Moving along. So, drugs. Let's talk about drugs. Salazzo obviously wants to deal in drugs, and... He pulls an interesting political maneuver. He, he's not willing to go further than others are. He's more, I want to make a quick tactical strike and then immediately back off. None of the families want war. You know, gang wars, at whatever level, are always a mess for everyone. And they're bad for business. So, nobody wants a war. Salazzo knows that. So, okay, or Salazzo, however the hell are you supposed to say his damn name? Ugly guy. Anyway, so he knows that. He knows that a war is a bad thing. So he knows that he has one shot. Reach out, take out his prime opponent, in this case, Vito. So, okay, boom, gone. All right, he's taken care of. Readjust things, bring Sonny on board, you know, and immediately try to placate, even though he just killed their leader and father by pointing out to the political situation, well, nobody wants a war. Because Salazzo could have started a war if he'd escalated at any point past that. But he doesn't. He's just a kill. Okay. All right. So it's okay. It's okay. I killed that one man, but there's no reason for the rest of us to kill each other. And I know this almost sounds insane, but this is actually how politics have worked for centuries in real life. Uh, this is one of the reasons why so many incidents... I guess is the best way to put that, in what I like to call the Cassus Belli era, didn't escalate into full-scale, all-out war. There'd be skirmishes, or there'd be conflicts, or there'd be diplomatic tables, but in the end, people would all be like, all right, all right, let's all sit down. Yes, he or she did this, but we don't want to be going off killing each other, because nobody wants the war, right? And people like Salazzo, they take advantage of that. He knows he can't push any farther. He's not stupid. He's not brilliant or anything, but he's not stupid. He knows he had his one shot, and then he had his second shot to go after him at the Hal Hospital, which was basically just a, you know, okay, come on. Nope, that failed. Okay, can't can't do that. All right. And then he doesn't try anymore. He, he's done. It's all right. I, I failed. I'm out. This is beyond me. I want I want a truce. You know, you, you're asking me for guarantee. You're asking me for protection. <laughs> I'm the hunted one here, Michael. 
I love that scene. I do love that entire scene in the restaurant, by the way. I really, really do. So, Salazzo gets into this. Now, of course, Salazzo's trying to push the drug trade. I'll talk more about that later. Uh, all I want to say right now is that I love how Vito is very adamantly against the drug trade. He's not the only one of the of the five families' heads who is against the drug trade. Some of them are at least willing to go with it, you know, control. At least we should control the drug trade if, if we can't you know, stop it altogether. But one of the things I find funny about this, some of you may not know this, I actually grew up a part of my childhood in Southern California. That's all I'm going to say about that, okay? But even from a very young age, I have known that drugs, and when I say drugs, by the way, I mean drugs. You know what I mean by that. I don't mean aspirin. I don't mean the proxen sodium, okay? I mean drugs. So when drugs get involved, things just get messy, very very messy. There's a lot of money circling around that market. And it's a goddamn mess. Now, I mention that because I have not only ha I have had that opinion for a long time, and as I've grown older, I've been proven right about that many, many times. And that's been true for, for going farther back than I even knew about, you know, when I really started studying history. Opie Moores, anyone? Although that's that's a different thing. But you get my point, right? I love how Vito latches onto that and says, this is going to be the ruin of us. This is a mess. You get random thugs on the street who can make 50 grand in a week. You got a problem. You got a huge problem. And of course, there's this wonderful bit. They don't say it. There's a lot of stuff they don't say outright. Again, some multiple types of storytelling here. But one of the nice bits is about how they're protected. You know, the families are protected. They are crime bosses who operate out in the open. And they can do that because they have judges, and they have politicians, senators, and all those kind of people, mayors, you know, uh, police chiefs, who listen to them. And that is a delicate balance that's maintained because all those people, well, they can only be bought so far. You know, you have a senator who pushes for, you know, oh, clemency against this drug guy, or against this this violence guy, or against this horrible gang war, or whatever. You know, that's a lot harder for a senator or a judge or whatever to swallow than, oh, there's some gambling going on. You know, pushing the olive, you know, trade, all that fun stuff, right? Difference of severity. So we get into this drug business, yeah, we'll get more money, but we'll lose more power. And again, we see that comparison between the money perspective and the political perspective. And Vito is firmly in the latter category. And of course, Brzezini, did I get it right again? Brzezini, yeah, God, I keep getting that right, is for, firmly in the former category. He thinks this should be pushed. And he's going to use his position and his money in order to try and push it. Huh. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So, after the hit... I've kind of jumped around in my notes here a bit, forgive me. After the hit on Vito, which failed, I'm astonished by that. After the hit on Vito, we see something that I wish I'd picked up on earlier, but it's it's there in the whole film. We see that Hagen is the businessman. And Sonny, he's not. He's, he's, he's the emotional one. They, they say this line several times in the film. It's not, nothing personal. It's just business. 
Hagen is the one who understands the business side of things. Sonny, he understands the personal side of things. He gets very personally, intimately involved with his things. He cares. I'll talk more about Sonny in a second. What I like about that is we see, at least for most of the film, that Michael actually sits right in the middle, just like Vito did, really. He understands how things can be personal, and he understands how to keep personal out of business, but he also understands how the two can be merged, or the two are both relevant, both important, right? So, there's another quiet theme in the work that I really like. It's, it's pretty much stated flat out by, oh God, I can't think of his name, Carmelo or something like that. But it's the theme that stuff just happens. You know, life is what it is. You, know, you can't stop it, you can't fix it, you can't try to make it better. All you can do is try to endure it as best you can and make do with what you got. You know, it's, it's not quite resignation, because resignation is a form of despair. This is more, eh, you know, life sucks, but we gotta do what we gotta do. You know, there's this, just sort of this almost stubborn need to keep plodding on, despite what's going on. And there's a little bit of that in the early bit, and there's a lot of that in the later half of the film. And this whole idea that, you know, the family's got a war every now and again. It's just a thing. It's gotta happen. You know, whatever. Just, just, it's just going to be this conflict. It's going to go on. It's not really going to, you know, whatever. Just, just let it go. We'll deal with the, we'll deal with the fallout. You, you go back home. We'll take care of you. Okay. So, <laughs> I mentioned here. This is where I wrote down my note about Sonny never really sliding into a cliche. I meant. I have another note here that's related to that. It would be difficult for me to summarize any main character in this film in one sentence. Anything I say would be missing pieces. And I think that's awesome, that there's so many characters that have layers and depth to them. And again, that I got invested in throughout the course of the film. I enjoyed that immensely. I also enjoyed how Sonny really is a lot like his brother, like Michael, specifically. Because they both care. They both give a damn. They both love each other. They both want to be there for each other. They both, you know, they love their family. They want to be there for their family. You know, all that fun stuff. They all give a damn, as I've previously stated. But what I love about it is they we see the difference in how they deal with things. Like, hang on. One second, I need to find my specific note, just to make sure I'm not saying the wrong thing here. Yeah, here we go. So, this is a point, and I think it's one of the better points of the film. That's why I want to say this the right way, so forgive me for checking my notes here. So, we see, you know, time passes, montage, war, uh, sunny does not command the respect of his family. He is the head of the family right now. He's the actual person running the, the mafia or whatever, but he does not actually have the respect of his people. In many, multiple different occasions, people talk back to him or say things that he doesn't want to hear or just go around him or ignore him, you know. It's a completely different environment to the situation that was had earlier with Vito. We also see how Sonny appreciates, I shouldn't say appreciate, wrong word, how he uh, approaches situations. Because 
Well, <laughs> let me rewind just a sec. Hold on to that thought. Michael meets... Oh my god, I can't think of her name. Italian love interest. I can't think of her name. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Thunderbolt. Okay, holy crap. Yeah, whatever. So he meets her. And then he meets her father. And her father's like, oh, come on. You know, he's willing to threaten him. It's like, oh, we gotta go. And he's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Call him out here. The guys arm themselves. His bodyguards arm themselves. And he's like, it's cool. Call him out there. And they're like, okay. Michael approaches the situation very calmly, very politely. But he's not a coward and he's not weak. He hits that perfect balance between polite and respectful while having a wall of iron behind you. Something that Vito and Hagen also managed throughout the course of this film. In fact, I would say the three of them are the only ones who manage that, that perfect balance of being kind without being a pushover, but not being a bully in the way that you represent your strength. It's a very fine line they walk, and he does a great job of this, because he almost threatens uh, Vitelli, that's his name, the, the father's name, Vitelli. I remember his name, not the daughter's name. Anyway, so he almost threatens him, but he doesn't quite. But then he, he, he treats him with respect, he humbles himself before him, apologizes, and is like, look, I apologize, please, may I join you with, in family, may I meet with your daughter, please. And he wins him over as a consequence. And, of course, ends up actually marrying Italian love interest. <laughs> Forgive me. Now I want to bring in the Sonny thing. Because, again, both Sonny and Michael obviously care. That, that's all over their characters. Sonny walks in and sees the bruise on his sister's face. Now, I have a sister. I haven't been violent since I was a kid, but I'd probably beat the ever-living crap out of anybody who laid a hand on her. Go ahead and call it what you want. I don't care. That's my sister. And I care about my sister. So I have to admit, I was just going, YES! when I was watching Sony just beat the ever-living snot out of Carlo. Just, YES! GOD! Beat him half to death! Kill him, if you will! Please! Just kill him! No? Okay, okay, whatever. I loved that scene, but it again shows the difference in approach, and it shows why Sonny, despite being the guy who has always been involved in the family business, has no real place in it. He's not good at it. He's a decent front-runner, you know, uh, a made man, maybe, but not the kind of person who could actually run this. Michael's approach, he still, he cares. You know, and I mean, to be blunt, the way he deals with Carlo later is far more appropriate for a Don, a Don boss, than for what Sonny does to him personally go out into the streets, have his thugs basically make a wall, like, no, nah, no, nah, chill out, chill out, while he just beats the ever-loving crap out of him in a blind rage. <laughs> so, here's where I bring up the scene between Carlo and Connie. I already kind of said my thoughts on that. You know, Paramount shoved it in, doesn't fit. And to be 100% blunt, it was really, really uncomfortable to watch it. The only reason I actually watched it all the way through is just in case I didn't want to miss anything, because, you know, this is my job, professional, etc. That's, that's the thing. I just realized, I'm sorry, the, the big difference between 
forgive me, Sonny and Michael, as Michael is professional about it, he still cares. He's still willing to get vengeance, obviously. But he is a professional about how he does it. Sonny, again, went out and beat a man on the street in broad daylight in a blind rage. Not that I blame him. I might have been cheering him, but it's still a thing, right? Anyways, anyways. So, yeah, so, you know, for professionalism, I decided to go ahead and watch the whole scene, but it was really, really uncomfortable to watch. I am grateful that the worst parts were done off-camera, because that would have just been horrible. So, I actually wrote down the name of the guy who insisted on that, by the way, Robert Evans. Thank you, Robert Evans, for insisting that I had to watch that in your movie. He was a Paramount executive. Anyways. So, obviously that ends, that sets up Sonny's death. It was all a trap. It was all a, a ruse in order to try and lure Sonny out, which works. And then they lay the trap for Sonny and they absolutely freaking destroy him. <sighs> then the pace of the film shifts gears noticeably. You know, the end of Act 1 was clearly with the death of, oh god, I've already forgotten his name. Luzo. I can't remember, I can pronounce it. Solozo. And the the incredibly corrupt police captain, you know, their death, end of Act One. Um, I would say that the death of Sonny is pretty much the end of Act Two. I know the time between those two periods isn't equal, but it feels like the end of Chapter Two, if you will. And then we get into Chapter Three, which is when things really start to be like, all right, let's settle this down. Vito calls for a head of the families to meet, says, look, this needs to end. And again we see that approach that Michael has already shown several times, because Vito stands up and is like, look, this is real simple, okay? I will forswear vengeance, because, and he points out very correctly, vengeance will not bring back my son or yours. However, so, I, so I'm not going after you. I ain't doing nothing. But, my son's coming home. Michael's coming home. And if anything whatsoever happens to him, I am blaming the people in this room and will take action accordingly. And he, he says it so perfectly. It's probably Brando's one scene where he, excuse me, one of two scenes where he really, really shines in this film. Because he comes across as incredibly menacing without needing to raise his voice above a whisper. I love that. And, of course, this is when we really start to see Barzini start to enter the film. And, of course, Vito himself flat out says, it's been Barzini this whole time. He's been the one manipulating this this whole time. That whole drug money thing kind of comes in again. And they once again discuss the reality of it. But, you know, I'm, I'm outweighed, whatever. If we have to have drugs, let's at least control it. Whatever. So... Then something happens, and then something else happens right after that. Tune in more for, for some of my incredible insights into this film. Michael receives news that Sonny has been killed. I'm saying this out of order, forgive me, but Michael receives news that Sonny's been killed. And it's just kind of a... Okay. And he takes it hard. He does a really good job. Again, he's, he's keeping it out of the mask, but it's the first time in the whole film, really, where Pacino's mask cracks, just noticeably, right there. And you can see just a little bit oozing out there. And he's like, okay, 
Then his wife is killed. Italian love interest. I'm sorry, I don't remember her name. Anna Maria or something like that? I don't know. Anyways, she's killed. By accident. It was meant for him. One thing I liked is, despite being relatively a disinteresting character, I don't have much to say about her, they established that she's the kind of person, you know, strong woman is, is usually how that's described in a, in a writing sense, you know, when you're describing a, or summarizing a character. The kind of person who is not satisfied with just being, you know, in the background. She wants to do her own things on her own ways, and she wants to be accomplished and capable. And I felt, personally, that that's actually a pretty good match for, you know, for Michael. Ironically, I don't think Kay's a match for him at all, but... You know, I don't want to talk about future Godfather movies here. But I mentioned that. So those two events happen right after another. And then Michael goes back for Kay. I've never understood that. Maybe this is an Italian thing that I am completely missing. Because, again, I don't know Italian culture. It's one of the few cultures that, sadly, I, my knowledge of goes up to, like, you know, maybe 1200 BC, you know, I, or not 12, excuse me, 1280, my bad, 1280, you know, I don't, I'm not really versed. So the fact that he goes very quickly from death of his wife to linking back up with Kay is weird to me. The closest thing I came up with for an answer was the fact that he wanted to have children to continue the family name, you know, with Sonny dead and you know, this this needs to be a thing, right? I don't know. Anybody who is, who is far more versed in this movie or in the book or in Italian customs, please feel free to help me on this one because I don't know. It's the only thing I would consider a bit of a misstep in his character arc. Now, I only have a couple notes left, really, despite how much that happens in the final act of the film. First of all, Pacino completely changes how his character acts from this point onward. He is far colder, far more emotional, far more brutal. You can tell that this is a changed man, that he has gone through his character arc, and nowhere is this more apparent than when he confronts Carlo. I know that's skipping ahead a lot. But the scene where he confronts Carlo shows so clearly how he has become from what he was. Because he does something weird. He lies to Carlo. He says, look, do you think I'm going to leave my sister a widower? Come on, come on. Here, take a drink. It's okay, it's okay. No, you're getting exiled. We're sending you out to Vegas. That's your punishment. You're out. You're out, okay? No, I don't want to hear it. And what's funny is he portrays himself as there's a certain type of calm, and I don't know what else, how else to describe it other than it's a person who is extremely not calm, but is maintaining that little bit of control over themselves. And so, you know, he tries to apologize to Michael, and, and that calm slips for just a second. I don't want to hear it. Just whoom. Then he walks outside because he wants to watch him be killed. Slowly. No guns. No, they strangle him to death. And he wants to watch. That is the man that Michael Corleone has become. Although, not that I blame him. Sorry. <laughs> Don Lorerunner. Sorry, sorry. Anyways, maybe there'll be Don Runner? That doesn't sound right. Anyways. <laughs> so, there's some good bits. Uh, he goes out to Vegas to negotiate 
for the for the casinos. He wants to get big into the casino business. Good move, actually, I would say. Best way to avoid the drug business while still saying, staying solvent in the changing world. Uh, not that I want to bring my economics perspective into this. But he has to effectively muscle out the other guy, whose name I don't remember, forgive me. And Frito's there. I bring this scene up because it's a nice parallel. Much earlier in the film with drug guy, Salazzo, he really wasn't that memorable, apparently. <laughs> I even remember random characters' name, but I can't remember Salazzo. Anyways, Salazzo is doing the thing, and Sonny walks forward and is like, hey, and, and Vito's like, eh, calm down, hang on. And then later he chastises him. He does it quietly, but he does it with that sort of menace. Nope, you not outside the family. And then Michael does the same exact thing to Frito. In, in that Vegas casino. It's like, you don't, you don't side against the family, you understand? You're my older brother and I love you, but you don't do that. I like that. It's a great scene. Um, and then Vito dies. But I think what I love most about that scene, there's a lot of death in this film, and almost all of it is, is portrayed as ugly, which is good, in my opinion. It shouldn't be romanticized. Not in a film that's going for that kind of realistic touch like this. Pretty much every death in this film is an ugly affair. Except for one. When Vito dies of a heart attack, he dies as a grandfather, not a godfather. And something about that really struck me as appropriate, very fitting. Because, A, well, he was not a nice man. He was still, I would say, a better man than most of his other peers who also meet their ends throughout the course of this film. I would also say that, based on his talks and his, most of his final conversations with Michael, I, I got the impression, maybe it's just me, that he wanted out of the crime business. He wanted to move up, you know, be one of those people on the strings, you know, Governor Carleone, right? I always got the impression that he wanted to shift away from the crime, you know, organized whatever business and just start going it straight. No more worrying about being shot or having whom betray whom or whatever. No more of that mess. No more of Barzini. Just, you know, got to worry about the constituents and the voters and what are we going to do for the next term, you know? I got that impression, maybe that's just me, but I find it appropriate that he didn't die the crime boss. And then at the crime boss's funeral, Barzini makes his move to bring in Michael and kill him. So then Michael, and this is where that Joker thing really comes in, decides, okay, and he's going to say hell with all the rules. You know, we've had this war for however long, we've called this truce, excuse me, Vito called this truce, and uh, I'm bringing all y'all down. Every single one of you has been picking away at us ever since. And you could tell, and I, I, I caught this this time through, that Michael's been planning this ever since he got back. There's this great scene with him and the other two sub-bosses, forgive me for not remembering their names, the betrayer and the not-betrayer. And he's there with them, he's, this is when he says, Tom Hagen, you're out of this one. This is when uh, Vito vouches for him. You know that scene? As soon as I saw that scene, I was like, oh my god, he was planning it from then. You get this impression that Michael came back and was like, yep, I'm burning it all down. You have pushed me beyond my tolerance, sirs. 
So he, and he's even patient about it because he's not Sonny. Sonny would have come back full of hellfire, probably got shot for his trouble. But Michael, well, this is what makes Michael so damn dangerous, just like it made Vito so damn dangerous. He's quiet. He's willing to be patient, to wait for the opportune moment and just send out the right people at the right time and to kill every single heads of the five families. Boom, 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 boom. I love that scene, by the way. Might be my favorite scene in the film. That being said, I can't let it pass without comment that I felt that the baptism cut back and forth was a bit much. I know, I know, I get it. But unlike the earlier scenes where the, the it was so obvious but well done, I was willing to let it go, this is obvious and I really don't feel it's as strong. And according to Amazon's little fact thing, although I also read this in an interview some years ago, uh, apparently they that was always intended to be the scene, you know, it's from the book and all that. But it just was not working on the camera until they added in the overlay of the organ music to really tie in the scene. And it does work. But personally, I wish the baptism part of that scene just wasn't there at all. I felt like it kept pulling me out of the moment. That being said, I did really, really like the other half of that scene. It was very nice. <clears throat> I'm not vengeful, I swear. Uh, so... Uh, wait, what? Oh, Sally, that was his name. That was the name of the... I actually wrote down his name here. It's like, who's Sally? Sally's the underboss who betrays them. This is the final thematic thing the film does. Because everything after this is just kind of wrapping it up with a nice little bow. Sally is like, all right, let's go. And he walks in, sorry, I can't go with you. And Sally looks at Tom. He doesn't beg. He doesn't plead. He doesn't lie. It was always business. I liked Michael. I didn't want to do this. He he admits it right up front. And then he's like, could, could, you, could you get me off the hook on this one for old time's sake? And when Tom says no, he just kind of nods and accepts it. Goes back to that theme I mentioned. Stuff happens. And you just got to deal with it and do what you can. And so it's interesting to me how Sally dies with a sort of quiet dignity. This is, of course, immediately contrasted by the more crude and crass Carlo, who he shows up, and Carlo lies to him, which pisses him off, and then Carlo turns into a sobbing, gibbering mess, like, oh, God, oh, God. No, no, it's okay, it's okay. And Michael lies to him. I still find that interesting. I think that's probably a hint of what was going to be you know, the future, maybe, I don't know. But it shows that Michael is, in his own way, a much worse person than Vito was, or at least a much darker person. That he is willing to, you know, say, it's okay, you're going to be alive, blah, 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 and then go have him killed. Vito, unless I missed it, never did that. There were several scenes where I thought Vito was going to be like, it's okay, it's okay, I'll handle this. And then he handled it. He was true to his word in every circumstance, but Michael lies to his face. And so, Carlo is like, la, 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 and he tries to weasel out of it. There's no dignity at all, and he dies slowly being choked in the car. Like the rat bastard that he is. 
and Michael watches. Then, uh, I can't remember her name, Kenonia or something like that. Kenoya? Ken Kenio? Michael's sister comes running and raging at him. I gotta admit, I didn't understand that. Maybe I'm just weird and born three decades or two decades later. One decade later? God damn, I was born pretty soon after this movie. Um, I was born later. But the point being, I mean, I, I still to this day don't understand why she was so upset that Michael had her husband killed. He was a bastard who hit her more than once. Never mind the horrible scene I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, it was faked, but no, that's a great way to put it. Sorry, honey, I had to do it because I was trying to get your brother killed. Now, he had it coming. I really legitimately, I mean, she was even upset about him because he was so flagrantly cheating on him. Or cheating on her, excuse me. So, why was he, she so upset that he died? It felt like that scene was mostly there for the purpose of it being expressed to Kay so she could then confront Michael. And then something really interesting happens because Michael lies very, very well because he puts on this whole show about getting upset. It's probably the only time in the whole movie he legitimately loses his temper. It's like, Ugh! God, no, you don't... <clears throat> Pulls himself back. It's all a show. It's all an act. Pulls himself back. This one time you can ask me about my business. And then she says, is it true? And then he lies. Which, of course, she finds more believable given the show he just put on. No. No, I didn't have him killed. I didn't watch or anything like that. And that shows the kind of person he is. The new Don. And then the movie closes out. And things go on. He just gotta deal with it as it, deal with it, as it comes. Very... Very good movie. An absolute treat to go back through this. I hope you have found my amateur rumination on this enjoyable. And I will be seeing you guys next time.